Hey folks, welcome back to the next episode of the Jedi Council podcast where we like to explore mental health and your favorite fictional characters. This is your uh, number one favorite graduate student podcast co-host, Brandon Saxton. And your number one favorite professor co-host of all podcasts, Katie Gordon. Of all podcasts. That's, that is high praise, Katie, but you know, I <laughs> of like... Of all podcasts <laughs> that are named Jedi Council. How oh, about that? well, that's more specific, but I was really <laughs> liking that confidence, that good, good podcast confidence. Uh, Katie, how are you doing today? I'm doing fine. How are you? I'm always doing good when I'm podcasting. Uh, there's nothing that makes me happier than just getting in front of that mic and, and just just doing this thing you know <laughs> i'm all about it it's my weekly uh boost that i just need to push myself right into the weekend it is super fun i i really like it too plus we just talked to another fellow podcaster and we did i know we were supposed to say a couple of things before then but i'm no, so excited okay. that i started talking Please. about it right away do you want to spoil the 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 breaking news for our listeners i think we should go ahead go ahead or would you like me to you do it uh, so <laughs> The Jedi Council, the podcast that you know you love it, you've been following it for over six months, maybe close to a year now, I have no idea, something like that, <laughs> is now officially a part of the Geek Therapy Podcast Network. Round of applause. Yay. Enter it right there. Uh, no, it's super exciting. So there's this absolutely wonderful network of podcasts. There are four others. Uh, we're the fifth podcast to join the network, and uh, we couldn't be more excited about it. This is a great group of folks who are doing something similar that we're, we are doing. They've got uh, this sort of nerdy interest, and they're interested in making a change and doing something good, and they're bringing that together, and they're talking about it on the air, and they're just getting that information out there for people to listen to. And I... I couldn't be more excited about working with these folks. Uh, you can find a link to the Geek Therapy Podcast Network in the description. Go and please check out all of the shows. They're all absolutely wonderful. Uh, I'll talk a little bit more and plug in a little bit at the end of the episode. But, yeah, no, uh, the folks over here at Jedi Council uh, couldn't be more excited. It's, uh, it's going to be, well, I dare I say, the dream team of podcasts. <laughs> uh, I, I dare say it, and I just did. So. so just buckle up, folks, because that good, geeky uh, content you know and love is just there's going to be a steady stream of it so get ready <laughs> yeah we're we're really really excited about it and this most of the podcasts on the geek therapy network do the same thing like you're saying as us they try to connect ways to get mental health accurate mental health and psychology information out there through mm -hmm. these kind of geeky interests so to be able to team up with people who have similar overlap and values is just so exciting absolutely so uh get ready to hear more about that because it's a great group of people and i'm going to try to encourage you to listen to them every chance i can uh other current events uh news was uh, I saw announced just a very brief sort of teaser trailer, a new Avengers game coming out. Uh, no real details about it. It looks like it's going to be maybe in the same vein as the sort of Arkham Asylum uh, Batman games were. Um, the teaser trailer looked really cool, and I'm excited to learn more about it. I know I'm sort of well-known for my joking and uh, harping on Marvel comics, but I really do like all comics. Uh, and I love comic book video games, so I think uh, it definitely has the potential to be something really cool. Um, and Katie, you had something else for our current events segment? Yeah, I just wanted to briefly mention, because I didn't talk about it last time, that I read the Love is Love comic that was put together from IDW Publishing and DC Entertainment. And what it is is 
different contributions from wonderful comic writers and comic artists, and it's a tribute and also a fundraiser for to honor those who were killed in Orlando mm-hmm. at the Pulse Club shooting. So the, the focus of it is really, well, it varies. It talks about mm-hmm. different things that are relevant to LGBTQ issues, and it also talks about how people process these events. Mm-hmm. Batman makes an appearance mm-hmm. a few times. Just... It's, it's very moving. Uh, Liam Sharp, who does uh, Rebirth Wonder Woman, we've mentioned mm-hmm. his artwork before, he did one that he wrote, and it's just, it's really great. I think it was so popular that they might be on their third printing. I'm not sure. Uh, Amazon has them as their number one bestseller, and I know our local comic mm-hmm. book shop sold out of them, mm-hmm. so it's definitely worth picking up. It is still available on Amazon. Mm-hmm. It's $10 for a ton of oh, yeah. outstanding stories. So. I think they're recently, I think they're currently rather on their third printing of it because wow. I checked on Amazon to get a copy mm-hmm. after I couldn't get it here in town and they were sold out recently. So now that I see it's back in stock, I'm going to order one uh, right after this because uh, from what I heard from you and so many people was it's an absolutely beautiful comic, uh, a real uh, tearjerker. Uh, it'll make you smile. It'll make you cry. I've heard it all about this comic, so I'm really looking forward to getting my hands on a copy and uh, and just supporting the cause. I think when you have people creating art and and using the mediums or the things that they're passionate about to try to make a difference and and make a, a little positive change in the world, I just I can't help but support something like that. I think it's absolutely wonderful. I agree, and I, I actually think we could do a full episode on it after oh, you I read would, it because it's it. got so, so... It shows how powerful the medium of comics are because it really is able to express... You know, sometimes people think of comics as just lighthearted and making jokes. Mm-hmm. I know you don't, and probably mm-hmm. anyone listening to this doesn't oh, think that. But this shows how it is a true art form and how the writing and picture can be truly moving, get people to connect to and just deal with huge tragedies mm-hmm. like this. And so so anyway, I just wanted to mention that. I really liked it. It recently came out, and you'll probably hear more from us about it. Absolutely. Um, other than that, I think that's all we have for our current events, so maybe we can slide right into the topic of the day. So I think today is going to be part one of at least two, uh, but certainly part one of our uh, mini-series, mini-segment something are we're going to be talking about disassociative identity disorder so this uh topic sort of came in to our minds i think after a conversation that we had at my birthday dinner recently mm-hmm. so maybe just to kind of introduce the topic and how it came and happy about. belated birthday oh. to brandon oh yes thank you very much um how it sort of came into our minds was uh there's the, currently a movie i think it maybe is playing now but the trailer is certainly around called split and I've only seen the trailer, and it, in, in very qu- quick and succinct words, what it shows is a person who presumably has multiple personalities kidnapping three or four teenage uh, women and uh, sort of subjecting them to some sort of horror. You mm-hmm. know, a, a pretty typical horror movie trailer plot. And uh, I was a part of a Facebook thread where people sort of asked, the poster asked, well, you know, what do you think about this movie? And I wrote what I felt was a fairly balanced comment just saying, you know, I wondered about any potential impact that that film may have on mental health stigma. And I really posted it just to prompt discussion. It wasn't accusatory or anything like that. And it sort of led to what I think a lot of Facebook or Internet rather broadly things lead to, which was um, some people kind of saying, you know, 
arguing against me and saying, you know, you know, that's not the case. It's just a movie. And so that's sort of besides the point. And I think in our next part of the episode, we'll focus more on the media portrayals. But that's sort of what got us thinking about disassociative identity disorder. So I think peop- maybe, Katie, do you get the sense that if you said disassociative identity disorder, the, uh, the majority of people would know what you're talking about? Or do you think most people think... Uh, or are more familiar with the term multiple personalities. Multiple personalities. Uh, that certainly seems. Uh, they more do common. seem, in my sense, to be used fairly interchangeably mm-hmm. in the sort of um, mainstream commentary. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, I think that's true. And and you know, some people. I guess one point we should maybe talk about right away is that when I teach abnormal psychology, some people think that schizophrenia is oh, the yeah. same thing, and schizophrenia, which we we are overdue for an episode on that mm-hmm. too. So Absolutely. we'll do one of those, but. There are differences. Schizophrenia does mean split mind, so I mm-hmm. understand why people would think that. But this is something different from schizophrenia, too. I think that some of the older movies that come to mind actually call people who are showing different personalities schizophrenic. And so oh, I'm sure really? that it shows the kind of impact that Hollywood representation has Absolutely. on things and why it is important to get that stuff I right. wasn't actually familiar with that, that that was kind of maybe portrayed that way in I could film. be remembering oh. this incorrectly, mm-hmm. so people tweet at me if I'm wrong, but I think... not. What was that movie? Jim Carrey was in a movie a while ago. Seven? Was that it? Was, oh, me, oh. myself, and Irene. And oh, I didn't okay. actually see it, but in the trailer, they say that he has schizophrenia or that oh, he's schizophrenic, but it's actually not. It's more of a dissociative identity disorder. Interesting. So maybe to sort of, uh, like always when we're talking about disorders, a jumping off point would maybe just to give people what is... Uh, what I mean, what is dissociative identity disorder? So, really, uh, it's a disorder where someone is losing, the, essentially losing consciousness. You have y- your body; you're still awake, you know, and still functioning, perhaps, maybe not all the time, but you don't have consciousness anymore. And very specifically, there are two or more distinct personality states or alters that sort of take control of the body, control the behavior. Um, a lot of times there are lapses in memory, and it's not due to any sort of other effects uh, like a brain injury or using a substance. But is that a quick and... I think I've got all the main pieces there quickly summed up. Yeah, yeah, that's exactly right. That's Those are the main things. And, and maybe even breaking it down further, we should talk about dissociation because dissociative oh, sure. identity disorder is an extreme of that. But most of us from time to time have... mild dissociative experiences and that might be one way to kind of imagine a little bit about what we're talking about so dissociation just refers to losing consciousness of where one is or what is going on around him or her similar to what Brandon just said it's not a disorder till it reaches an extreme level so for example some things that are pretty common that people say they experience that are considered dissociation are missing part of a conversation so if you're just kind of you're talking and all of a sudden, sudden your mind wanders somewhere else. Um, in one survey, 83% of people said that's happened to them. Um, feeling as though one were two different people, 47% of people oh, said wow. they extreme, uh, they extreme, they experienced that from time to time. Um, and then when we look at things like not recognizing one's reflection in a mirror, that's less mm-hmm. common, but still 14% of the population in the survey said they experienced that. And so usually when people who do not have it to the level of disorder, when they experience dissociation, it tends to happen when people are really stressed out or if they're really tired. And so um, that 
might be when it's occurred in the past, but you know, so things like daydreaming would be examples of very, very mild levels of that dissociation or that losing consciousness or, or awareness of surroundings that, surroundings that um, I combined awareness and surroundings. It's just to make sure the episode's not too long. I'm going to start combining my words. Um, so anyway, that that's how it is kind of generally. And then we talked about dissociative identity disorder. So maybe we should talk about how common it is. So I'll, <laughs> you what? want me to talk about it? What's that, Katie? I'm sorry. I was I was I was mine. I was dazed out. There you go. Oh, See, it just happens kidding. All Dissociating. Oh, uh, a perfect that's a good example. Uh, of it. Example. No. Exactly. Uh, no. No. The prevalence rate. So it's about le- uh, right around one percent of psychiatric inpatients mm-hmm. experience a dissociative identity disorder. So in other words, very rare. Mm-hmm. I think and even in terms of mental uh, disorders, it's a it's one of the more rare ones. That's or right. Maybe the rarest. I don't. Probably not the rarest, but certainly. You know, that's a good question. So maybe dissociative fugue Mm -hmm. is rarer, where someone just, Mm -hmm. like, picks up and has a new identity and is in a different place. But this has to be one of the rarest, because, again, it's only not even... Schizophrenia, in comparison, is 1% of the population. And this, this is, is 1% of psychiatric inpatients, so yes. it's, it's so pretty it, rare. Mm-hmm. Um, most of the people who do is experience or are diagnosed a dis- with a disassociative... Jeez, where are my words today? That's I'm, the one downside of us waiting till the end of the week is I we're both a little we're bit tired. Just, yeah. <laughs> I know. But, it, you know, it's kind of that late afternoon sort of thing, mm-hmm. and I'm just thinking about eating a piece of pizza after work, so I'm just trying to talk as quick as I can. <laughs> I gotta hit the brakes and just slow it down and give people that good, good psychology knowledge and information that they've been waiting for all week. Maybe we'll order a pizza to eat while That's we, what we record need. on next air, time. chomping pizza right on the microphone. I think that'll really improve the audio quality of what we're doing. I'm gonna start over one more time, folks. <laughs> Most of the people who are diagnosed or uh, experience a dissociative identity disorder are women. Uh, there are more semantic complaints and more behavior than men who have dissociative identity disorder. Uh, for women, the men who have dissociative identity disorder experience more of the sort of aggressive behaviors uh, than women tend to um, when just sort of comparing the gender differences between people who do meet the diagnostic criteria for that disorder. Yeah, and it's not really clear why there appear to be gender differences. And again, because it's so rare, the research and knowledge about Mm -hmm. this disorder is limited, so that's important to keep in mind. But part of it is thought that it might have to do with girls reporting have experienced more trauma, and trauma is one of the major risk factors for this. And so most people who experience trauma do not experience dissociative identity Mm -hmm. disorder, but among those who have dissociative identity disorder, trauma is common. And so some of the suggestions have been, when you look at things like sexual assault, if women are more likely to experience that, that might explain why you see different rates. Absolutely. Um, Maybe should we go over some of the, you know, if you have dissociative identity disorder, there's a chance for, um, you know, you could have this increased risk for depression, increased risk for anxiety, uh, post-traumatic stress disorder, substance abuse, and eating dis- uh, eating disorders, rather. Um, so, man, I'm tr- it's that end-of-the-week sort of vibe. I've still got it. Why am I not thinking of the word where you have more than one disorder? Comorbidity. Thank you very much. I just taught about it that, yesterday, so that oh man, so it's fresh in my mind. Good. But but no, I mean yeah, comorbidity. Yeah, so. thank you. A common term that I promise I know normally. Of course you do. Except for uh, Fridays after. But five. we're going into your <laughs> dinner hour. And, and I did just dissociate. Oh, yeah, well that that yeah. also makes it difficult. So when people have it at the level where it's it's clinical, this this is a painful disorder, right? Oh, this absolutely. comes with numerous 
less problems. Again, we're not talking about the typical milder levels that people experience, but it's it's people who have this are experiencing a lot of emotional pain. The I know we're going to talk about this later, but mm-hmm. one of the biggest problems with Hollywood representation is often it is used for a horror story, yeah. right? And that is not representative of people with dissociative identity disorder. And that sends the message, again, of connecting this violence and mental illness Mm -hmm. together that's not really there. And so um, that's more likely what you're seeing are people who are experiencing a lot of pain themselves. They're losing time. They're not functioning as much. Absolutely. Um, Maybe it's worth talking a little bit about some of the cultural differences and prevalence rates. So typically, dissociative identity disorder is more frequently diagnosed in the United States than you'd see in, like, uh, Europe, Japan, India, or places like that, and then maybe uh, even breaking down those subsects a little bit more, there do tend to be some elevated rates among Latinos. Um, so it's it, it's one of, like other disorders, there are some cultural differences, too, that you see. Um, I, I, I've noticed this when I taught abnormal as well. A lot of times there seem to be some differences between the United States or Portland States and some, uh, you know, uh, Europe or Eastern countries, too. So it's... I don't think it's a terribly uncommon sort of trend to see. No, it just shows how important it is to not just look at biology and things like that, but to look at how culture actually affects the expression of mental disorders and, and, and understanding why that is. Because then if you can understand that, you might understand better why it's lower in some groups. I mean, we see this... With suicide, for example, um, highest suicide rates demographically tend to be among white men. Some of the lowest are black women. Mm-hmm. And uh, a lot of the focus is on what are the additional risk factors for white men. But it's important to understand what is protecting black women mm-hmm. from dying by suicide mm-hmm. at high rates. Now, to be clear, it still happens, of course, and mm-hmm. you need to pay attention to whoever you're worried about for risk of suicide. But when you see those differences, it's important to examine and think about those cultural factors. Not to get too far off on mm-hmm. the, uh, a tangent with that, but I think that is a common trend that's being corrected in clinical psychology is there was, for a long time, a lot of focus on who is uh, ill and why are they ill instead of taking that look at uh, who are the people who don't seem to be getting these mental disorders, and why is that? And are there things about those people, uh, ways that they're thinking about the world or thinking about themselves, that we can teach to other people to serve as a protective uh, force against developing mental disorders? And I've seen, I mean, in the last so many years, there has been that sort of correction and change in focus on um, on what what are the protective factors and what can we do in terms of preventative mental health care, which I think is is a, a new, fairly new thing in the grand scheme of clinical psychology. Yeah, I think you're right. It, it's easier to focus on what's wrong than what's oh, yeah. going right, and I think that we could be missing part of mm-hmm. the solution by, mm-hmm. by doing that. So that's a great point. Uh, back to dissociative identity disorder. So uh, several people who do receive this diagnosis um, have been the victims of sexual or physical abuse. Um, these individuals also tend to be fairly high on uh, being able to be hypnotized, and uh, there does also appear to be a certain genetic component to it. So there certainly is this sort of biological genetic, uh, also experiential components that all sort of come into play um, to, to lead to this disorder. Um, man, I'm just losing all of my knowledge today. What The diathesis stress model, that's what I'm trying to think of. I'm very proud of myself for thinking of on my own this time. <laughs> uh, so people tend to have this certain 
baseline genetic predisposition to experiencing a disorder, and then certain psychosocial stressors like sexual or physical abuse, for example, might increase those odds uh, over the course of their lifetime. That's right, and I think one thing that's important to say is that when I when we think about someone with dissociative identity disorder, saying there's a history of abuse, you wonder if someone is dissociating how accurate their report is. Mm-hmm. But in research like this, they corroborate the abuse reports with emergency room files or at least other family members. And so it does seem that they're validating there's a true connection between being a victim of abuse and for those people who have that tendency to be um, more hypnotizable, which does seem to be genetic, Mm -hmm. at least in part. The idea is that to deal with that severe abuse, they're kind of Mm self-hypnotizing and then it goes too far and starts creating alters. And so that's that's one of the beliefs about how this occurs, that it's too painful to experience the reality, and so people cope with that involuntarily yeah. by by dissociating. So someone comes into the clinic, Katie, and you end up coming to this diagnosis of dissociative identity disorder. Uh, what's the therapeutic approach for that? I mean, I think ultimately the end goal is, I'm answering the question even though I asked it, that's pretty rude. Uh, Ultimately, the end goal when you're thinking about disassociative identity disorder is you have this person who has disassociated for whatever reason, and the end goal, correct me if I'm wrong, is to merge those uh, alters or personalities. So you're just sort of dealing with one consciousness again. And, And I think maybe... Have I got that right? I think that's the main end goal. Yeah, that's the main goal is to reduce that because it does cause so much distress and impairment when you, obviously when you're losing time and not able Mm -hmm. to be fully conscious. So that is typically the goal, yes. And so what's been used in the past is um, basically therapists who are trying to identify all of the different Mm -hmm. alters and try to integrate them. And there's some research suggesting that this can backfire and actually result in more alters, which we call in therapy an iatrogenic effect. There's a recent paper out that I want to mention. Um, I'm also proud because it's I know one of the authors on there is uh, one of my friends and former lab mates that talks about adapting dialectical behavior therapy, which we've talked about before, to use with dissociative identity disorder. It is typically used with borderline personality disorder, but there are a lot of features in it because borderline personality disorder focuses on things like staying in the moment, suicidality, and those other things that you see with dissociative identity disorder. This suggests that if you use some of those principles from DBT, that that could be a promising way to help with dissociative identity disorder. And so that's that's a cool new direction mm-hmm. that I hope to see more information on that. Absolutely. As therapists or clinicians who are interested in empirically Spartan interventions, that's the kind of work we absolutely love to see, especially for these disorders that are a little bit more rare. Or in the case of dissociative identity disorder, DID, a lot more rare. Mm-hmm. So it's hard to get that good empirical evidence to see what are the treatments that are really working because there's so few people who get the diagnosis. It's hard to do anything like a randomized clinical trial to see compare different forms of treatment. So it's great when we can get any sort of publications like that that can shed some light and give us a little direction uh, when treating some of these more rare and maybe challenging disorders. Yeah, that, that's absolutely right. Um, one, one of the other things that is interesting about dissociative identity disorder is in terms of cultural influence is that it does also seem like one of the representations of it is that people who have been 
convicted of crimes, use it as an excuse mm-hmm. to get out of some kind of sentencing. Yes. And I think that that might be something interesting for us to talk about later Absolutely. because there have been some cool experiments looking at how even non-clinical populations, how college students, for example, with the right cues might start acting out some aspects of dissociative identity disorder. And so that's another thing that's been a controversy surrounding this topic, Mm -hmm. and I I think we should talk about that more uh, next episode. Absolutely. Um, Maybe just to close off, we can talk a little bit about some of the controversy about the disorder in general, sort of beyond the criminal justice system. Uh, There is some controversy just about what exactly does the disorder consist of uh, within the field of clinical psychology, mental health in general. Uh, There might be some... I, I think there are some therapists who... Uh, are maybe a little skeptical skeptical about what exactly is going on. And there's some cultural things that I think play into that. Uh, so, for example, you know, there are some uh, of the cases where there are different, amount, different amounts of the alters and sort of observing the cases, this changed after, uh, uh, what was the, the film, Sybil? Yes, Sybil. Yeah. Uh, there was all of a sudden in the people who were diagnosed, there was an increase in the number of alters that they saw and an increase in the, the number of cases that were diagnosed. So just a few things like that where you see that Hollywood kind of was going along with the prevalence rate of how you sort of saw this disorder and how it was conceptualized. And to make that even more of an interesting example is that Sybil later admitted that the multiple personalities were fake, that she didn't actually have them. And so she, her, it seems like the construction of it was that the therapist, she had a relationship with the therapist and wanted to be interesting and felt like she was encouraged to create that. And since, um, that had such a cultural influence, the fact that she says that she didn't really have multiple personalities also kind of added to the controversy of this disorder. Most of the controversy isn't about whether it exists or mm-hmm. not, but just how common it is, Absolutely. I would say, right? I would Most agree. people agree that it exists, but the with the rates being so impacted mm-hmm. by cultural factors, it is some people wonder about that. Mm-hmm. And also in terms of treatment, because some of the treatment has been shown to be harmful, I think that's the other part that kind of feeds into the mm-hmm. controversy about whether it's actually a good thing to try to diagnose and treat or should we conceptualize it in a different way? Absolutely. And, and I don't there's I don't mean to in, be insensitive. Uh, you know, people who are experiencing this disorder uh, absolutely need treatment just like anyone else. I didn't mean to to imply that, you know, th- there are cases where people were like Sybil or mm-hmm. people who wanted to get off crimes were um, – you know, taking advantage of this disorder and people who are truly suffering in the experience that they're going through, too. I just want to make my thoughts clear on that. No, I think because what I've run across, too, which maybe you did on your Facebook thread a little Mm -hmm. bit, is that it's a very nuanced picture. Yes. Because we're saying, yes, the disorder is there and it's real, but there are also these effects where these influences can increase the manifestation of it or the prevalence of it. And so it's not a, is this real, is this not? It's more complicated than that. And I think that is hard to clearly articulate, which is part of why we're doing two episodes on it. Absolutely. We don't want to rush ourselves. No. Speaking of doing two episodes, we are running out of time for the first one. Did you have any other thoughts you wanted to sneak in? Uh, before we wrap up our first part on dissociative identity disorder, Katie? No, but if anyone hears us and wants us to talk about a particular character or fictional depiction yeah, there are a lot. of this disorder, go ahead and tweet it at us. We'll, we have some in mind that we'll talk about, and I'll talk about a real incident, too, the, um, of the Hillside Strangler. Absolutely. Who, and, and talk about 
that particularly interesting case and how it's related to this disorder. But um, if you have other things you want us to talk about, just send us a message and we'll try to include it in the next show. As always. Uh, and as always, thanks so much for listening in, folks. We really appreciate it. We love this project that we've been working on. And uh, you can find us at www.jedi-council.com. We've got our blog there, new posts coming up uh, within the week. So that'll be pretty exciting. Uh, we've got links to our Facebook page and our Twitter page there and some other resources, so go and check it all out. And like we mentioned, the big exciting news at the beginning of the episode, uh, we're currently, uh, or now newly added addition uh, member to this wonderful Geek Therapy community. Uh, there are some really great podcasts on there. Uh, check out Geek Therapy they've got on there. They've got Psych Tech. They've got Headshots. That's about psychology and gaming. They've got Rolling for Change. Uh, that's about education and therapeutic side of tabletop gaming. Uh, Psych Tech is, of course, about psychology and technology. Uh, so there's a lot of really great stuff on there, interesting people, uh, good stuff to listen to. Um, I'm saving the pearls of wisdom and the uh, the classic sign-off for the end of the DID segment. So uh, if that's all you've got for today, Katie, anything else? No, nope, that's it. That sounds good. Well, then uh, we'll just leave it at a simple thanks for listening and tune in next time to hear our stunning conclusion to the Dissociative Identity Disorder Saga. <laughs> Thank <laughs> you.